We are keeping democracy alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seeing as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not a drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Back when we had a president who understood democracy and cared about it and wanted to serve the common good. What a concept. Let me start with a quote. They didn't call it fascism. They painted it red, white, and blue and called it Americanism. Well, that's from a little-known 1942 American movie with Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy called Keeper of the Flame, which explicitly imagines a full-fledged, homegrown American fascist movement. In that film, democracy eventually won out. Today, it's become real. The term fascism is not one to be tossed around easily or lightly. We now have a president who probably doesn't even understand the word fascism, but is rather stunningly, unquestionably fascist, who intends to be a dictator, trampling on traditional American rights and values, his own dictates becoming the law instead. Today we're going to talk about warnings about fascism in American literature and the arts we've had throughout the last hundred years or so. My guess is Donald Trump has simply never read a book. He doesn't have the attention span for that, and what a waste to consider anything other than big, shiny things. That's probably how he thinks. One of those things that bigly affected Trump is the movie Citizen Kane. As with books, clearly he skipped much, if not most, of the movie and only saw what he wanted to see, which was a larger-than-life, infallible, super-rich guy with tremendous power. The part about Kane's hubris and failure he apparently missed. Now we have a child man occupying the White House, one who has no understanding of a Republican form of government who clearly abhors democracy. Oh, it's just so messy and inconvenient. But did this come out of nowhere? As our guest on Keeping Democracy Alive today writes, the truth is many people did imagine the forces that brought him to power or versions of them. We just stopped listening to them. Our guest is Professor Sarah Churchwell. Thank you for being with us and Keeping Democracy Alive. <laughs> Thank you for having me <laughs> and for keeping up the struggle. <laughs> yeah, it's a big one. It's some heavy lifting. Uh, yeah. Sarah Churchwell is professor, professorial fellow in American Un- Literature and chair of public understanding of the humanities at the School of Advanced Studies, uh, University of London. Yes, she is across the pond. She is author of Careless People, Murder and Mayhem and the Invention of the Great Gatsby and the Many Lives of Marilyn Monroe. Her literary journalism has appeared uh, wildly, widely, including in The Guardian, New Statesman, 
and New York Times book review. And she comments regularly on the arts, culture, and politics for TV and radio. She has judged many literary prizes, including the 2014 Man Booker Prize, which was, and was co-winner of the 2015 Eccles British Library Writers Award. An American living in London, she is currently writing a book about Henry James. Well, again, thanks so much for being with us. So American literature from the 20th century is full of warnings about fascism coming to America. Some truly prescient politicians, like our little-known, in my opinion, rather great, former Vice President Henry Wallace in 1944 in an article called American Fascism, appeared in the New York Times written by himself, the Vice President Henry Wallace. A fascist, he said, is one whose lust for money or power is combined with such an intensity of intolerance toward those of other races parties, classes, religions, cultures, regions, or nations as to make him ruthless in his use of deceit or violence to attain his ends. Wow, was that prescient. Wallace predicted that American fascism would only become really dangerous if a purposeful coalition arose around crony capitalists, poisoners of public information, and the KKK type of demagoguery. As you write, Sarah, those today defending the Trump administration insist, no, it's not fascism, but Americanism. And that back in 1938, New York Times reporter predicted cleanly uh, when and if fascism comes to America, it will not be marked with a swastika. It will not even be called fascism. It will be called, of course, Americanism. Being a traditional American, of course, is the very antithesis of fascism. Joe McCarthy described uh McCarthyism is nothing more than Americanism with his sleeves rolled up. Got that from your article, Sarah. So what is this fascism, and how does it masquerade as Americanism? Well, I think that's one of the... That, that's exactly the crux of the issue, right? Is that, it, is that it lets people pretend that that isn't what is happening and to say, no, no, this is just... Um, this is just patriotism. This is just protecting the country's interests. Um, and that's why I found that Henry Wallace quotation, those New York Times pieces from 1938 to 1944, to be so remarkable in the way that, that particularly that bit that you said in the middle there, um, when Wallace said what will make American fascism dangerous is if there is a purposeful coalition between, uh, he actually used a different phrase for it, but, but what we would call crony capitalists, kleptocracy, people who he said poison public information, the media, and then the KKK and, and that um, kind of white nationalist demagoguery, which is what he's talking about there. It seemed to me as I read that, first of all, it seemed to me as if um, Steve Bannon had been, mm-hmm. uh, you know, combing through old copies of the New York Times to find, you know, his recipe for what he needed to do, because it's, it's frighteningly accurate, right? I mean, those, that, it is that purposeful coalition. Um, what I think that definition leaves out is the role that far-right religion also plays in an American fascism. I think the thing about fascism, of course, is, is everybody, you know, lots of people are getting angry and saying, you know, it's not Hitler and you can't throw this around. And actually to say that this is like Hitler is to trivialize the Holocaust, is to trivialize genocide. Other people then point out, well, the, um, you know, Hitler and the um, Nazism and, and the eventual Holocaust didn't come out of nowhere. They happened gradually. And what yes. people are trying to do now is to recognize the early warning signs and stop them. 
um, it, it seems to me that there's actually, and this gets into a little bit of detail, but I, I would recommend to people a really interesting article that the Italian writer Umberto Eco wrote in the New York Review of Books a few years ago. And, and if you want, I can, I can pull up the, the exact title of it, where he talks about the difference between Italian fascism and German Nazism. And he talks about the fact that Italian fascism was what he calls fuzzy fascism, and it was specifically corporate in its nature. And it struck me that that was a really useful thing for us to start thinking about, is rather than getting lost in semantic distinctions, mm-hmm. but is this fascism, is it not fascism, is it exactly the same, is it not exactly the same? It's not exactly the same. It has its own American slants, but it's authoritarianism, it's autocracy, it is attempting to consolidate power in the hands of one or a handful of people. And, in, and of course, in, in this current version, it's deeply you know, embedded in uh, kleptocracy. So these are people who are clearly, I mean, I mean blatantly, brazenly, um, as we've just seen over the yes. weekend with all of the Mar-a-Lago stories, um, these are people who are determined to extract as much money out of being in power as they can, and that's not inconsistent with fascism. It is inconsistent with democracy. So whether we call it fascism or not, although I think it's a perfectly accurate way to talk about what's happening here, particularly if you look at Echo's description of Italian fascism, it sounds an awful lot like what we're looking at. Ultimately, I'm less concerned with whether we call it fascism or authoritarianism or autocracy, but recognize that what it is is anti-democratic at its core. Absolutely, absolutely. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Live, Bert Cohen here, our guest today is Professor Sarah Churchwell, a professorial fellow in American literature. We're talking about, in London, and we're talking about uh, warnings in American literature throughout the 20th century about fascism and what we have now. Now, it's interesting that uh, 1984 is once again on the bestseller list. George Orwell used terms like newspeak, and I wonder if something called alternative facts is is like basically the same thing, is it not? Absolutely, and I think that is exactly why uh, Orwell has suddenly shot back to the to the top of the reading list. People are absolutely right in seeing that parallel. When people start hearing something like alternative facts, they recognize um, that this is exactly what Orwell was predicting, um, that this is uh, you know, fake news. This is newspeak. Right. This newspeak. is the, uh, a government's insistence that facts are what they make them, yeah. that anything they don't like isn't true. Yeah. And, of course, with, with Orwell, it's worth remembering that Winston Smith's job is that, you know, he works at the Ministry of Truth, yes. um, which, again, is, you know, sounds like a very Trumpian thing to say, because, of course, um, if people remember, Winston Smith's actual job is that he creates fake news. He is an historical revisionist whose job is to go through old newspapers and alter them to be in keeping with mm. the party line. Um, I think the other thing that's worth uh, thinking about in terms of, of Orwell's parallels with today is that Orwell says that Newspeak, um, again, this, kind, this um, sort of double-talk language that he invents, um, which, in which alternative facts or fake news would be perfectly at home, mm. um, he says specifically that Newspeak is designed to diminish the range of thought, that's his phrase, to Mm. diminish the range Mm. of thought. It has a deliberately diminishing vocabulary. 
And we might remember that, you know, there are reports that Trump speaks with about a, a sixth grade vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. that, this is, that, that in Orwell's mind, this is actually part of a way of, of constricting public discourse, of making sure that there are certain concepts that are not available to you because you no longer have the language to even articulate them or understand them. And again, I think, you know, for, for, um, for anybody paying attention to what the Trump administration is saying, what they're blatantly saying, um, this has to be ringing very serious warning bells. Wow, it certainly is. And we all remember uh, pictures of the burning of books by the mm. Nazi regime. And as you point out, in 1984, books were the enemies of totalitarians. Now we have a Secretary of Education, <laughs> I mean, talk about Newspeak, who clearly wants to continue the decades-long decimation of public education. They knew what they were doing. I, critical thinking when I was growing absolutely, up. Absolutely, absolutely. And of course, the great book in the American tradition about burning books is Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, right. which is another book that people are uh, discovering. You mentioned McCarthy earlier, and Bradbury wrote that book in 1953. At the height of McCarthyism, it is a response to McCarthyism. And his whole point is that books are historical memory, that the books are there so that you learn from the lessons of the past. And that is a familiar idea. It's not as if that is, you know, a revelation to any of us, but it's easily forgotten. And and that's, again, the point of going back to some of these historical examples, is they're precisely what Bradbury is admonishing us to do, to learn from the past, to recognize that these people survived fascism in its, you know, first modern form. I mean, some people have said that we might make a distinction between what was then modernist fascism or modern fascism and mm-hmm. what might now be postmodern fascism, which, in which this is the kind of style of fascism, but with a different uh, kind of agenda, or at least a, a, you know, it converges, but, but there are some parallels with the agendas, but some uh, differentiations. But either way, these are people who survived it. These are people who survived McCarthyism, and we ought to look to them to learn the signs, to, to check. You know, it's like a litmus test. Are we actually going through this? And when you go back to any of these books, it is frightening how much of a checklist they are, and you just think, yep, check, 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 check. That's exactly what's happening. Amazing. And one of the things that I have discovered being kind of a, a history nut myself is that in order for myth to have precedence, there has to be an intentional erasure of mm-hmm. memory. You cannot really look at it. It has to, I mean, Vietnam, like we refuse to learn the lessons of Vietnam. You've also referred to Philip K. Dick's The Man in the High Castle, that perhaps he was a predictor of White House reliance on alternative facts. I wonder if you could just mention that a little bit. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's interesting about The Man in the High Castle is that its plot hinges on a more literal idea about alternative facts, in which there are these propaganda... I don't want to spoil it for anybody who's still watching the Amazon series, which is well worth checking out. Um, But so I'll just say that the... um, the, the plot hinges on the idea of propaganda films that actually play out alternative outcomes of history, depending on people's choices. So it sort of literalizes the whole idea and says, you know, the, the kind of question is, will these films come true? Which of these versions of history is going to become documentary realism? So it's taking the idea of alternative facts to its kind of, you know, ultimate extreme and saying what, what would happen if, um, you know, the, the, the logic of the counterfactual, if the Nazis had won, if there had right. been a joint occupation of North America between the, Ax- or, you know, between right. the Axis powers, um, what would that have looked like? And again, he, you know, Dick understood, and he wrote that in 1963, and um, 
And anyway, but so he's, he's understanding in that story how absolutely central propaganda is to all of this. And again, of course, that's what Orwell is really getting at with Newspeak and revisionist history and all of that. That's all a way. Those are, those are all um, just aspects of what is, a, what is essentially a propaganda project. And again, I think that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing the production of, of propaganda. Yes, tremendously. They don't want people thinking, can't have critical thinking. And and you also refer to Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. It, it, one of its most quoted lines articulates the argument of authoritarians everywhere that, quote, there is more than one kind of freedom, freedom to and freedom from. Uh, in the you know, there's freedom to do things that that I really like, you know, as as an American. But now we are being given freedom from. Yeah, well, that's the national security argument, isn't it? I mean, yes. One of the exactly. which is why well, I won't even call it. I won't dignify it by calling it an argument. I think it's a fallacy myself. But um, but that's the the case that people make, and it reminds me of one of the other books. This is one of the ones that I discovered when I was researching this essay. Um, you know, obviously we all know Orwell, but I kind of wanted to try to dig out some some lesser known ones, and and one that I ran across um, that's been largely forgotten. And I don't recommend it as the greatest novel, but it's very interesting to read right now in light of what's going on. It was by a man called Irving Wallace. It's called the R Document, the letter R, right. um, the R Document from 1976, and it was written immediately in the aftermath of of Nixon's resignation. And um, the whole plot hinges on, and it's a kind of thriller, but the whole plot hinges on a corrupt FBI director, that doesn't sound very familiar, um, who is trying to overturn the Bill of Rights, and he wants to get a new constitutional amendment passed that says no right or liberty guaranteed by the Constitution shall be construed as license to endanger the national security. And that new amendment is there in order for anybody to declare a state of emergency and suspend the Bill of Rights. And it's interesting to read that novel now because he, he, he's so clearly writing it as if this is the furthest, you know, most extreme thing he can imagine. And, and clearly, you know, he's sort of saying, well, you know, people wouldn't really go for this, but here's my, here's my cautionary tale, my warning. And now you read it and you think people are actually making this argument. I'm hearing people make this argument every day that, you know, that this right ought to, the right to national security ought to supersede every other right. And of course, that's yes. what the arguments about the Muslim ban are about. That's right. what all of the arguments about, you know, the Homeland Security and Customs and Border Control are about, or, you know, is, is, is their insistence that this will make us secure, uh, does that give them the right to suspend all of our other rights? That's quite apart from the question of whether it will succeed in making us secure. <laughs> right. But ridiculous. if we just deal with the principle of the thing, um, which I know is a quixotic thing for me to say in this day and age, um, to suggest that we might move away from instrumentalism and utilitarianism and, and think about the principle of the thing as Americans, hmm. um, I know that's quaint of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm definitely a conservative in that same quaint sense, that's for sure. I like American tradition. You, you also write that American authoritarianism has always been entangled not only with patriotism, and I, what you were just mentioning, it's so clearly the case. They're just trying to say that, you know, like, like those judges who ruled against uh, Trump's uh, Muslim ban, that, uh, oh, well, if we get attacked— I think you'll find. Hmm? so-called judges. I oh, yes, the so-called judges, of course. Of course, because they disagreed with their president. The country's two most familiar belief systems are, of course, religion and business. 
I find it fascinating that ever since FDR's New Deal, the right wing has been at its most effective when the two, religion and business, link up as a way to undermine the success of the New Deal. Part of this was seen in the early 50s when the words, in God we trust, were added to our dollar bills. In contrast to what was said about FDR upon his death by journalist and radio broadcaster Dorothy Thompson, she said, he saw a new world in which the labor of men and women, the resources of nature, must be organized for the general welfare, end of quote. Now, that's like totally the opposite. You mentioned that Sinclair Lewis could sense government of the profits, by the profits, for the profits, which is exactly what F, uh, Henry Wallace cautioned against as well. My sense is that this is exactly what the Trumpists genuinely believe in, that it's all about making a profit, that making the deal, making the profit. Talk, please, about now the the now realized power of the two belief systems, which seem to have replaced FDR's vision, religion and business. What effects are we beginning to see of, of that uh, coming to power of those two belief systems? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what you know, one way to think about it is that it's the um, it, it's this it's this crude, literalized version of the Puritan work ethic. Um, the idea that not just that that you know working hard is a good thing, um, but that actually that being successful at business is itself a moral virtue. Yes, as if it's one of the good things in life, and mm-hmm. and we saw that arise. I mean, that historically arose in America throughout the 19th century and into the early 20th century, and you get to the point, I mean, it's remarkable to me, you mentioned um, at, the, at the top of the program that I wrote a book about Scott Fitzgerald and the Great Gatsby, and I was really mm-hmm. focused on the early 1920s there, and it was very, very um, uh, terrifying, frankly, uh, to me when I heard um, some of Trump's supporters talking, I think it might have been Kellyanne Conway, I can't remember who it was, um, but somebody was saying that that this was going to be, you know, that one of the marks of Trump's greatness was going to be that he would usher in another decade of Republican businessmen in control of the country the way there was in the 1920s. And she was, whoever it was, was hearkening back to this, you know, golden era of the 1920s and saying it'll be so great when we have, uh, you know, we, we had we had three businessmen in charge in the 1920s, and wasn't it fabulous? Mm. Well, except for the part that it set the conditions for the crash of 1929. Yeah, well. Um, and the fact that at the beginning of the 20s, the first American businessman president, um, Warren G. Harding, mm-hmm. was, of course, the man responsible for the Teapot Dome scandal, which is the biggest political scandal to date in American history, although, as I have noted, you know, we're not done yet. So um, there's, a, there's a real feeling that they, may be, that they may be going for it, you know, to try to surpass that record, see if they can do better than the Teapot Dome scandal. And, and it, was a, it was a moment in which, I mean, a, a little-known fact that I think is very telling is that the same year that The Great Gatsby came out, the number one best-selling book in America was mm. called The Man Nobody Knows. It was by uh, the best-selling non-fiction book in America. was was called was by a man called Bruce Barton, and it was The Man Nobody Knows. And it was a book in it was a kind of self-help management book, and it was a book in which he actually argued, literally, that Jesus Christ was the first businessman executive. Uh- and that if he was alive today, he would be an advertising executive and he'd be running the company. And you read that and you can't help but think of Trump. I mean, th- these are people who actually think that it is, we call it a cult of business for yes. a reason, mm. who think that because he's a businessman, that it's as if the three things are tied in their heads, businessmen, wealth, and goodness. And they say he must be a good man because he's rich, right. it's like a syllogism. Mm. Mm. And, and yet it's totally fallacious. And again, quite apart from the fact 
that he's not even a successful businessman. So I don't understand right. why the syllogism doesn't break down at that point, where you go, well, he's actually a bad businessman, so therefore maybe he's a bad man. <laughs> if you actually believe that the business and virtue are, are um, you know, are, are somehow necessarily linked. But obviously, you know, five seconds of, of you know, glancing at recent history shows us that people who are financially successful are not necessarily the most morally <laughs> virtuous among us, let alone whether Jesus would actually, I mean, you know, whatever the teachings of Jesus say, they don't actually say go out and get rich. Right. <laughs> so, the whole, and you, so the perversion of all of this is a way to justify greed, to justify selfishness, to justify acquisitiveness, yes. um, which we're seeing not just obviously from Trump and his nearest and dearest, right. but in my view, from the Congress that is supporting him. I mean, I think oh, what the yeah. GOP is doing is unconscionable. Yes. And, and it's obviously related to, um, not just to a sense of wanting to hang on to power, but of, uh, of trying to extract whatever um, you know, wealth and, and, uh, and, and uh, a privilege they can out of this. Profit Uber Alice, you know, just uh, everything. That's the only thing there is, making a profit. FDR certainly yeah. thought there was something called the common good that government really ought to serve, and I happen to agree with that. Um, yeah. Well, one of the things I've been pointing yeah. out, you know, is that we, we switched from the word common wheel to the word commonwealth. Oh, interesting. Um, and that, you know, and the common wheel obviously means just what you just said, the common good. And of course, commonwealth also, yeah. you know, didn't just mean but material wealth. But in our in our extreme literalism, that's what we tend to interpret it to mean. And we need to go back to a notion of a common wheel, of common good, of common decency, of thinking that those virtues matter, and and that you know that money making is is not only not the only virtue; it's not a virtue at all. Right. It is not a virtue to make money. It may, it may be a useful thing. It may be something that you want to do, but it isn't a virtue in any way that we can understand the meaning of the word virtue. I'd love to see us uh, traditionalists, oh, used to be called a liberal, take back the term virtue. You know, it, yeah. it, it, it's, it's time because we have, I think, more of the sense of what the founders actually talked about with regard to what they meant by virtue. It's not just being rich, that is for sure. Oh, so many wealthy people are not virtuous, in my opinion, at all. And, exactly. you know, pointing a finger at the others, that's a big, you know, th there's a lot of tradition there. Trump didn't even try to hide his racism against people of darker skin than his shade of orange. Uh, of course, Trump's <laughs> truly odd ban on Muslims from seven countries is consistent with that it's the others. In Sinclair Lewis' uh, 1935 novel, It Can't Happen Here, Senator Buzz Windrip, love that name, foreshadows Trump. Tell us a little bit about that, please. Well, it's a, it's a very interesting novel, and again, it's, it's one of the ones that people have been rediscovering. It was written in, in 1935, and it's, it's a really um, furious satire. It Can't Happen Here, of course, is invoking that, um, that idea that, that we Americans have, have used to kind of buffer, you know, the sense that we're, um, that we're protected, right. that somehow American democracy or American virtue mm. um, or the American exceptionalism yes. somehow uh -huh. insulates us from mm -hmm. the threat of fascism, that it just wasn't possible. And, and, and there's a complacency to that, that, that Lewis was absolutely furious about as he watched fascism rise in Europe. And so in 1935, he wrote, he just imagined how it would happen in America. And it's a it's a senator who's, who's a kind of demagogue. Mm -hmm. um, he's a general. And um, so he's got the kind of military on his side, at least to begin with. 
And um, Lewis has this absolutely fabulous line where he says um, he, he advocated everyone's getting rich by just voting to be rich. So there's this complete, you know, um, vacuousness to the, pro- to, the, to the promises that are being made. They're totally empty. Wow. Um, and in fact, he was, um, the character of Buzz Windrup was based on the um, populist demagogue Huey Long, who yes. had been uh, assassinated just before mm-hmm. Lewis wrote the book. And, and of course, Huey Long famously promised um, all of his voters that he would just give them $5,000 um, and that this would be how we would create... Um, you know, returning prosperity. And Lewis is, is very, um, you know, contemptuous of, of the idea that that would solve the problem of mm. the Great Depression. Uh, you can't just hand out money and think that that's going to, um, to solve it. And then what happens is that there's, a, um, there's a, a newspaper editor. In a lot of these stories, there are these, these brave, outspoken newspaper editors or journalists mm. who tend to be the voice of democracy. And mm. it can't happen here as one of those. So there's a there's a you know kind of grizzled old editor who keeps saying, "Are you people crazy? This guy's got dictator written all over him," um, and nobody listens to him. And um, and eventually he joins uh, this resistance movement. And then what happens is that um, Windrip mm. um, decides that he's going to. Uh, with the people, they, they, he starts to have these kinds of autocratic crackdowns. He he uh, uh, imprisons his political opponents in what Lewis calls concentration camps. Um, right and at one point, at the beginning of his of his um, presidency, the Midwest starts to get cross, and they start to grumble about secession. And so Windrup and his cabinet decide that the way to bring the country back together is by starting a war with Mexico. Um, and in fact, he even says that it, he even calls it deplorable. So yeah. he says um, they, he would arrange for um, Americans to be insulted and menaced in a well-planned series of deplorable incidents on the Mexican border mm. and declare war on Mexico. Um, and then eventually what happens is, I won't, I won't worry too much about spoiling this book because it's a satire rather than being very plot-driven, but what eventually happens is that Windrup is deposed, and as the book ends, mm. we're on our third dictator. Oh. Um, yeah, it's I, not a cheery outlook. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, I haven't read that, I will confess, but I may now. And with the uh, demonization of the press, you know, the press is making up fake news, right? That's what they say all the time. And the press is lying. The press is liberal. That's just absolute echo of that. If you just yeah. tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is called Keeping Democracy Alive, and it's a group effort, folks. We all have to do it. It ain't easy, especially these days. Our guest on the show today is Professor Sarah Churchwell, uh, professor of American literature. She's chair of public understanding of the humanities at the School of Advanced Study in the University of London. Um, and interesting the phrase that Trump actually used in his inaugural speech, America first, as one who seems to have not read anything, my guess is he had no idea of the origin and meaning of that. But as you write, Woodrow Wilson and then Warren Harding used those same words, America first. And of course, uh, uh, also uh, um, Charles Lindbergh, I think, used that as well. What do these, yeah, what did these words mean? To those presidents, well, they meant exactly what they mean now. Um, oh they God. meant it was a um, it was a code for um, nativism and for anti-immigrationism. The 1920s was, of course, one of the most isolationist 
um, moments in American history. Sure. And it's, it's no coincidence that these movements come together. You get a businessman, protectionist, isolationist president. In the 1920s, you had the last serious rise of the KKK. Mm. And, you know, obviously, mm-hmm. I'm not saying the KKK disappeared after that, but I'm saying the right. 1920s was the last was time huge. that they were enabled to have a real reign of terror. And people, um, people, I think, forget or don't know that in the 20s, the KKK went as far north as, you know, they were in the Northeast, they were in Long Island, which, of course, is why Scott Fitzgerald has Tom Buchanan talk about white supremacy on Long Island in the 1920s, because the KKK was in New York City. There are, there are headlines from um, the early 1920s when the Great Gatsby is set. If you look at the New York Times headlines, it says Mayor Highland vows to get KKK out of New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they had, of course, penetrated up into the Midwest as well, oh, sure. where I'm from, into Illinois, into Indiana, where they still, as we know, oh, yeah. have serious strongholds. So all of those sentiments go together, a notion that um, America first is somehow going, that it's a, it's a way to justify a very narrow construal of what um, individual self-interest might be and to put that self-interest above a notion of what we were just talking about a minute ago, of the common good or of um, some notion of a, of a democratic polity where we all pull together. Mm. Um, this is a kind of code for me first, um, entrenching what we would now call, in my view rightly, um, entrenching white privilege, in t- entrenching white status. And it, it actually goes back to um, the immigration debates of the 19th century, which is when the word nativism first was used in this context. Mm. Um, so there's, there's a long history here, and you get um, Lincoln... There's a, a, um, a famous letter that Lincoln wrote in 1855, um, asked whether he was part of the um, so-called Know Nothing Party, right. and they were the original America First people. They were right. the original nativists responding to the waves of German, Italian, and Irish immigration mm-hmm. in the late 1840s because of the revolutions in Europe in the 1840s and because of the Irish potato famine. So there are waves of European immigrants coming in in the late 1840s, and by the beginning of the 1850s, these were causing you know, massive ructions within the Repub- what would become the Republican Party. And part of what was happening, and people forget this, but part of what was happening with the, the, um, the, the uh, conflicts that led to the Civil War, w- of course it was primarily over slavery, but it also had to do with immigration. And, mm. um, and, and there was this um, splinter group called the Know Nothing Party, mm. and they were trying to block large waves of, of European immigrants. They blamed Catholics for rising crime rates. They insisted that Catholicism was foreign to American values. They said we shouldn't have Catholics in the country because they would be more loyal to the Pope right. than they were to the American president. And Lincoln was asked whether he was a know-nothing by a friend. Can I, can I read this quote? Because sure. it's pretty great. Um, he said, um, I am not a know-nothing, that is certain. How could I be? How can anyone who abhors the oppression of Negroes be in favor of degrading classes of white people? Our progress in degeneracy appears to me to be pretty rapid. As a nation, we began by declaring that all men are created equal. Mm -hmm. We now practically read it, all men are created equal except Negroes. When the know-nothings get control, it will read all men are created equal except Negroes and foreigners and Catholics. (laughs) When it comes to that, Lincoln said, I should prefer emigrating to some country where they make no pretense of loving liberty, to Russia, for instance, where despotism can be taken pure and without the base alloy of hypocrisy. Mm. Wow. 
The guy was good. The guy was good. No, I know. It's, it's just so, again, I mean, these, these kinds of, you know, eerie prophetic moments mm. where you think we have seen this before. And the, and so this, um, this idea about, you know, nativism in America and America first kind of ebbs and flows, mm. uh, you know, generationally or, you know, yes. skips a generation. And, and, so and then, so it, it hits again in the 20s. And there's a, you know, a very big uh, um, push in that direction, first with, with Woodrow Wilson and, and, um, and again, I think people tend to forget that Wilson was um, a, a Southerner. He was oh, yeah. he supported segregation. Oh, yeah. um, he was not uh, necessarily the liberal hero, that, the progressive hero that, that we sometimes paint him in our too simplistic versions of history. He had some progressive, uh, uh, you know, um, platforms and policies, but some that were that were definitely not. And then Harding picks up the idea of America first, and all the way through the twenties, that becomes um, this. Uh, rallying cry for protectionism, for isolationism, yes. and got uh, and got taken up by the KKK, and and since then it's been coded as oh, yeah. uh, various. I mean, as I say, it, it has this longer history, but it's been quite clearly coded as a um, as a as a way of of trying to uh, camouflage or make acceptable to put a polite face on um, white nationalist or white supremacist. White nationalism and supremacy. Yeah, that's what we got. I guess that's what people voted for. But uh, I've actually, people have said to me, how can you be against America first? What's wrong with America first? Well, I think the point is that, you know, we're not supposed to learn history. We're not supposed to know such things. Uh, we, you know, the books are, are disturbing. They're complicated. We need some easy stuff. And talk, exactly. ab- talk about images. Uh, as, as we said earlier, Trump's favorite movie is said to be Citizen Kane. Talk about the remarkably similar fascist iconography used in that movie and at the 2016 Republican convention. And, and also the two, I thought it was fascinating, as you write about the two newspaper headlines which had been prepared in Kane's bid for governor. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So for people who know Citizen Kane, um, we were talking about it, it can't uh, happen here as a, as a satire of um, the rise of fascism in America and Citizen King, you know, often named the, the greatest movie ever made, is also uh, a kind of a satire. It's a, it's a satire of, um, you mentioned the word hubris at the beginning, which is exactly right. It's a satire of Keynes' hubris, of the American individualism, you know, kind of running amok and what happens when it, when, when it mm. crosses the line from self-belief into megalomania. Mm. Um, and, and into, uh, you know, speaking of America first, you know, it becomes a, a kind of, you know, me first, um, a kind of gargantuan selfishness. And so, um, and, and a cult of personality, right? Well, and there was that picture. These um, fascist leaders also rely on that there's this self-aggrandizement built into it. So in Citizen Kane, there's a very, very famous scene. Lots of people, even who haven't seen the movie, will likely recognize the still photo if they saw it of Orson Welles standing at a campaign rally with a giant picture of himself yes. uh, looming behind him. And it's a clear invocation of exactly the same kinds of iconography that Mussolini used and, of course, that Hitler used. You see it in the films of Lenny Riefenstahl. Um, and so it was by the time that um, uh, or- Orson Welles made Citizen Kane in 1941, this was a very familiar image, and he's very deliberately suggesting that Kane is is teetering on the edge of of fascism, and certainly that he has indulged in a cult of personality that's anti-democratic. And and a few years ago, um, Trump gave an interview to the documentary filmmaker Errol Morris, where he and it's a I mean it's a terrifying thing, but people should watch it. Um, you, I think you can get it online. And um, and he and he talked about 
how Citizen Kane was his favorite film, and he said very clearly that he identifies with Charles Foster Kane, um, and he saw him as this story of greatness. And he seems not to understand that in, in you know, certainly in Wells' mind and in, and in, you know, the mind of most people who watch the movie, um, it's about Kane's failure. It's about his loneliness. It's about what he, what he, it's about his Faustian pact. It's about his selling his soul for money and for power. It's the fact that he never has any friends, that he destroys himself in this kind of uh, um, quest for greatness that is meaningless. And of course... The, and I didn't really get into this in the article, I think partly for legal reasons, but, um, but, the, um, but it's very difficult for those who know Citizen Kane not to remember that, you know, and I hope nobody will, will object to my plot spoiling the, one of the most famous movies of the 20th century, um, that the mystery that drives it is what, is what motivated Charles Foster Kane, and we find out at the end that what motivated him was that he lost his parents and all he really wanted was his parents' love. And it, again, it's a little bit hard, you know, with all of the things that we're learning about Trump, not to conclude that there are very, very eerie parallels there. And you mentioned that one of the things that happens when, when Kane is having his, uh, during Kane's campaign, he's for governor, he's, he's, but it, it looks as if he's going to be straight on the road to the presidency. They think, you know, he's yeah. so popular and um, he's got all this charisma and he's going to win everybody over. And then there's a sex scandal. And because this is um, 1941, and in this moment it's set in about, it's pre-war, so it's set in like 1912, I think, is the moment when um, Citizen Kane's scandal brings him down. He has a sex scandal, and that brings him down. Of course, what we're discovering in our new postmodern fascism is that sex scandals are perfectly okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, but so in the case of Citizen Kane, it brings Kane down, and he, and, he, and he loses the election. And we discover that his newspaper, because he was a a newspaper tycoon based on William Randolph Hearst. Right. Um, and we discover that his uh, newspaper had printed two headlines, uh, depending on the outcome of the election. It was either Kane elected or fraud at polls. <laughs> Boy, does that... <laughs> and I mean, again, you just think, yeah. how can this man be so unself-aware that he would say that this is his favorite movie, that he would then... Oh, and so, so sorry, I forgot to answer the other part of your question. So that, that iconography of, of Mussolini and Hitler that Wells uses is exactly what Trump did at the Republican National Convention last summer, and it scared the hell out of a lot of people. I, I suspect, given, as you said, that he famously doesn't read anything, he repudiates books, um, is, is, that he's, is that he may even be unaware that Wells was invoking... Nazism and uh, Hitler and Mussolini in that imagery, and that he, Trump, just thought he was invoking Citizen Kane, and that he just liked that image, that it looked like greatness to him, yeah. um, in, in this very kind of unselfconscious, um, profoundly historically ignorant way. But at the end of the day, it kind of doesn't, I, I don't know which, which troubles me more, you know, if he deliberately picked up a, a fascist iconography or yeah, unknowingly, right. <laughs> um, you know, either outcome is, is deeply, deeply sinister. Oh my goodness, it is. And related to what we were talking about, you know, what, what Charles Foster Kane really wants, and the mystery, of course, is Rosebud, which I suppose there might be some people who haven't seen it, but so I won't give that away. But it's it's the, the love and, and the family and the friends that he wants. You write that Dorothy Thompson, we mentioned earlier, who was married to Sinclair Lewis, conducted an experiment. I think this is fascinating. To see what was the fascist type of person. She writes that this person, uh, quote, is the spoiled only son of a doting mother. Well, that... He had a doting father. Uh, uh, Trump did. Yeah. He has never well, been. He had an abusive father, right? But, but the um, 
the it's it's a it's a really fascinating article that Dorothy Thompson uh, wrote. It's called "Who Goes Nazi," and she wrote it for Harper's Magazine in 1941. You can get it online, and it's not that long; it's just a couple pages. Dorothy Thompson was uh, again this is somebody who's been undeservedly forgotten. Yes, uh, she was um, an incredibly famous and popular journalist in the 1930s. In, in 1939, Time magazine said that she was the second most popular woman in America after Eleanor Roosevelt. Right. And she had spent much of the 30s in Germany. She was there from, from very early in the 30s. She interviewed Hitler in 1931. She had attended Nazi rallies and Nazi parties. I mean, not as a, not as a willing member. Right. Um, she was very opposed to it. Sure. Um, but she was there watching it and, and documenting its rise. And she wrote this article in 1941 called Who Goes Nazi? And it was, a, it was a kind of thought experiment. And the idea was, she called it a kind of macabre parlor game. The idea was, if you're at a party, you're just at a party in America, and you're sitting around a social gathering with a bunch of people, you should go around the room and work out who, in, in a time of crisis, would go Nazi. And she, and she delineates, she doesn't name anybody, but she delineates the different personality types in front of her. So she says there's person A and person B and person C and person D. And I won't get them all exactly right. It doesn't really matter. But pers- so say, for D. example, person A is a liberal professor who traces his, you know, grew up in New Hampshire, and he <laughs> traces his roots, you know, back to the Mayflower. And he has certain values, and here's what he thinks, and, and here's why he would never go Nazi. But here's an American corporate type who, you know, his values are this, and he does this, and in a pinch he might be persuaded to be Nazi. He's not a natural mm. Nazi, and he might not. But under, certain, under the right circumstances, she says, you know, he could sign on. And then she talks about a woman who seems very timid and very deferential, and she's always, you know, being, you know, quiet, and she seems slightly, you know, kind of abused by her, what we would say, you know, emotionally abused by her husband, mm. silenced. And she says, you might think this woman would never go Nazis because you think that Nazis are, you know, very forceful types. She says, but this is the kind of woman who would go Nazi. And then here's a woman mm. who wouldn't go Nazi. And then she gets to the person she calls Young D. Right which was just amazing when I read this, and I thought, yeah, okay, really here we amazing. are. And she says, young D is the spoiled only son of a rich family, and as you say, says, says mm-hmm. a doting mother. He's never been crossed in his life. He spends his time at the game of seeing what he can get away with. He has been ruthless toward two wives, and his mother pays the alimony. His life is spent in sensation-seeking and theatricality. He is utterly inconsiderate of everybody. <laughs> He is very good-looking in a vacuous, cavalier way and inordinately vain. He would certainly fancy himself in a uniform that gave him a chance to swagger and load it over, lord it over others. And she says young D is the only natural-born Nazi in the room. Absolutely amazing. I mean, it's just mind-blowing how prescient that was, how that's exactly yeah. Mr. Trump that we're talking about here. Even to the D. <laughs> Oh, true. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that. D. Trump, the uh, somebody I, I read somebody called him uh, uh, Benito Chito because he likes being a dictator. <laughs> That's and wonderful. He's, he's that color. Well, I should say though, let me add the point about um, yeah. the, what Thompson says at the end of this piece because sure, it's please. really important and again really prescient. Is that she then says, having gone through all the Americans. She says there's an immigrant in the room. Yes, that's he's important. He's a European immigrant, so he's a refugee from their current uh, crisis in 1941. Um, and I don't, if, if I recall correctly, she doesn't specify exactly what country he's from, but you get the impression that you know he's from Eastern Europe, let's say. And he's a he's a refugee, and she says the people in the room think he is not an American, but he is more American than almost any of them. And she says that because what she's done is explain what his values are. 
And he's there because he believes in democracy, and he's there because he's chosen to come to America. He's proud that America has taken him in. His loyalty is with America and with American values. And that's why she says he is more American than almost any of them. And the implication is that only by, by joining um, this immigrant who is there to stand up for American values, along with the Americans who are the ones who would never go Nazi because they, they do understand their own values and nothing would ever persuade them otherwise, that it has to be these two joining forces that will you know, uh, defeat the, the Nazis in the room. And so, again, that, that turn to understand in, in 1941 that, that and, and clearly what she's implying there is that this is a climate in which, again, immigrants were viewed with suspicion they, or, yes. or they were um, you know, viewed with disdain as being not really proper Americans. And she's saying, no, this guy's more American than the rest of you, because what, what it means to be American is to adhere to a certain value system. It's not about where you were born, which, of course, some of us always thought was what the meaning of America was. Well, and we seem to have lost track of that. It's amazing how, you know, this whole struggle now, the the, the anger about, uh, you know, shutting off the immigrants and how Trump says, well, we'll let them in if they show they love America. I have gone to naturalization ceremonies, and it's it's so inspiring that people know more about what America is than most Americans do, it seems. Exactly. They've had to pass tests, which most Americans don't have to pass. <laughs> And you know, most people, you know, and when we see on the news, thank goodness the news is still being independent, And which I, I thought it was fascinating when one of the networks uh, was standing in front of the Statue of Liberty, you know, trying to make the point that, hey, what this is all about is... You're poor. Yes, right. It's, and, and I think people understand when they see people coming into the airports who have been held up, and, and a lot of people say, you, you can see them saying, I love America. I, I just... You know, they understand what America is. It's amazing how all this has been written. Now, there have been loud, massive protests against the dangers of of Trumpism. In in your studies of American culture and political history, what are your thoughts on, on the future of Trumpism, fascism in America? These demonstrations, people have been smiling. They've been nice and thoughtful in direct contrast to the rather ugly spirit of, of uh, Stephen Bannon and Trump. Now, I wonder, hope can be a dangerous thing. <laughs> but what, what do you think? As, as Nixon, in, in my memory, Nixon turned out to be the very best organizer of the anti-war movement, you know? Yeah. Might Trump and his powerful, rich, white men unintentionally spark a renewal of democracy in America, or is that reaching too far? Is that just silly optimism? What are your thoughts on that? Well, it sounds like we're very similar in our silly optimism, because I was having this conversation just last night with someone and saying exactly that, and saying, look, I'm not going to go so far as to make a prediction. Um, I'm not as prophetic as Dorothy Thompson or any of the people that I've been quoting, and I was, you know, absolutely certain that Trump wouldn't win. I was absolutely right. certain that he wouldn't win the nomination. Right. So whatever, uh, you know, kind of, um, uh, you know, claims to uh, to prophecy I might once have tried to make, I, I have been completely discredited. Um, but I, uh, looking at where we are now, and uh, you know, I'm sure you've heard um, John Stewart said something similar that he said, you know. Uh, Trump is going to make America great again, just not in the way that he thought um, with this, uh-huh. you know, these, these sort of spontaneous protests. 
Um, I think that this is clearly a major test of our democracy. Um, our democracy has been tested before. The Great Depression was a huge test of our democracy. And, the, and it's worth pointing out that one of the things that um, Americans during the Depression said, if you, again, if you read the New York Times, if you read some of the political debates about what, were happening, uh, what was happening at the time, they talk about the American dream um, and failure, but what the, and, and it's worth noting that the phrase American Dream only emerged in 1931. It's an mm. era phrase mm. to talk about America's failure. But what they did was they, they didn't think the American Dream had failed. They thought that the American people had failed the American Dream. Mm. Say more about that. The exact opposite. And it, and it goes to the point that it's our responsibility. The American Dream hasn't failed us. We have an obligation to live up to the American Dream. And if there is failure, it's on us to fix it. Right. My, my hope is, and, and one of my hopes in writing this piece, was that to remind people that there are places where our democracy is articulated. There are places where we have in the past and during exactly these moments. It's no accident that classic movies, the, the great classic Hollywood movies the, of, of you know, um, American political life, if you think about Mr. Smith Goes to Washington or It's a Wonderful Life, or right. I mean, those are both Capra. Capra was good at this stuff. That, that send the messages about what America means, about what democracy means, about what our values are, about choosing love and kindness and the, the common good and community over money, over business. Right. Mr. Potter's the bad guy, and it's a wonderful life for a reason. Yeah. And we now all live in Potterville, as I have seen people say on social media, and they're quite right, too. We're in, like, the dark, you know, alternative life version of It's a Wonderful Life, and we've right. got to get back to the... To the, to the right one, which is, you know, America rediscovering its sense of values and, and its sense of democracy. And, and my hope is that, that I, I think it's the only way we'll survive, is that, um, and, and I do see evidence of it in these spontaneous protests, in the way that the media is pushing back, in the outrage of ordinary Americans saying, are you kidding me? The way in which, you know, people just ran to JFK when the Muslim ban came in and said, you know, let them in, let them in, this is not us. Yeah. This that was is not beautiful. what we're about. This will not be accepted. This will not be tolerated. And, and as long as we don't lose that energy, and, and, and at the moment it certainly isn't looking that way, people are getting more horrified, not less, Yes. Um, then yes, it might actually make our democracy more robust. It is clearly politicizing people. It will um, hopefully uh, convince people of the importance of voting, of being actively involved, and you know, recognizing that the... You know, the um, that this is less than a third of the American population voted for Trump. Hmm. And yet here's where we are. And, you know, citizenship, as our founders pointed out, is, they didn't use these words, it's not a spectator sport. It takes involvement. And people have been convinced over the last number of decades, we're powerless. We can't do anything. You know, that, that we just can't do it at all. But I I don't agree with that. I mean, the, the, the Republicans are starting to feel, and I wonder about, you know, there's something called the Democratic Party, too. And fear, of course, is a huge part of the power of fascism. You know, the people mm. won't dare to stand up. And, and, and clearly, Trump and Bannon, they're trying to uh, frighten the media. You know, that, that's yeah. it's going to come down on them. everybody. Yes. But, but what about do you, the Democratic Party? I mean, I, my sense is that the Clinton era is over, thank God goodness you know there, there wasn't much of an opposition there was sort of republican light 
is the, do you sense that they could become the voice of of these people in the streets? Or are they missing out on it because they're too afraid of you know making uh, their funders angry? Yeah. Well, I think that's the big question, right? Is who's going to be the voice of the opposition? Um, the you know, in in my personal view, the Democrats aren't doing nearly enough. Um, I don't. I, I think they need to be resisting in as concerted a way as the Republicans did when they were a minority, and to just you know, instead in, you know, instead of doing the thing that they've been doing of saying, well, you know, if we don't uh, confirm you know DevOps, then we might get somebody worse. Well. Let them keep throwing them at you and keep resisting and keep resisting. Don't normalize this. Don't accept it. Right. There are enough people who who are um, alienated from the Democrats as an organized party that I think that you know this is an open question about what the face of liberal politics in America going forward is going to look like. Yeah. Um, I think it's Bernie Sanders, quite frankly. I mean, he seems to be... could, um, or Elizabeth Warren. You know, yeah. people are making a lot of noise about Elizabeth Warren. Um, I, I think that part of the part, the real um, obstacle that we have to address as a nation, it seems to me, and again, this is from, you know, looking on social media and things like that, that um, that we are, we are truly so polarized mm. that people have decided, you know, that, and everybody's kind of driven by ideologies. They've decided what they already believe, and once they, mm. once they think that you're not on their side, um, they think that, that you're... You, you're it's the syllogism I was talking about earlier, that it's as if we've conflated um, not the one I voted for, therefore wrong in, in kind of every sense, and therefore bad in every sense, and therefore kind of evil, and you're on the slippery slope where before you know it, you're saying that there are Beelzebub. And instead hmm. of saying, you know, I don't agree with you, um, but we used to be able to have a civil yes. disagreement. We used to be able to debate the parts of... of politics that we disagreed with because we had common ground yes. about the Citizenship. value system that you and I have been talking about. Yes. And that's what we have to rediscover and make sure that people say, actually, you know, whether it's Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or indeed, you know, you said a Republican light, but, you know, right now I would take a Republican light oh in, in a heartbeat, <laughs> although it doesn't matter <laughs> you or I vote, but, you know, a principled center-right person who, who would simply reject all of this. As I say, it wouldn't necessarily be my first vote, but right. I'd be perfectly fine with that. Well, to we steady the ship and get us back on the course of the rule of law and, well, and trusting in, you know, and believing in the Constitution, not having a president who undermines the judiciary. Oh, my goodness. I mean, so to me, that's the more urgent question. And if that means that the left has to reorganize in order to do that, um, so be it. But it may be that there needs to be a coalition of centrists. Um, and, and indeed, you know, that the coalition that emerges is not around left or right in the way that we've understood it previously, but is actually an anti-Trump coalition. That could and be. And it is just saying, look, you know, we'll sort that stuff out later, but the first thing we have to do is get this guy and his minions out of office, out of the Mar-a-Lago, so that we are not <laughs> having, you know, North Korean, you know, documents on in front of customers at a hotel. I mean, the the... the the insanity of this is just beyond anything, and so I think we've got to get back to some sense of of a of a sane political, you know, a sane uh, governance, democracy. Um, what and, a concept! Whatever that takes. We are trying to keep it alive. Thank you so much. Very very interesting conversation. Thank you so much for being with us, uh, Professor Sarah Churchwell, and uh, we'll see if we can keep democracy alive. It's a heavy lift, that's for sure. Thank you again. I'm a 
your special friend. He sees you ever.